0: Welcome to the second podcast in our Advent Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live-streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley will be continuing our series with a sermon called, How to Be a Herod. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill, whether you're here in person or virtually joining us, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you any way we can get you. And uh, this is a second Sunday of Advent, so if you've been watching or participating this whole time, you've seen the candles lit and you heard a passage read from Matthew chapter 2. That is a passage that we're going to be in this morning, and we'll be looking at uh, different passages on the screen, but if you have a Bible somewhere, near you or at home, if you're watching, streaming from somewhere, it would be helpful to have one, even if it's your, you know, app, Bible thingy, whatever, have something out for Matthew chapter two, that would really would help you out uh, to keep track of where we're going. Now, one more thing. This is also communion Sunday. So uh, we ran out here in person. So if uh, at least momentarily we did, but there's hope there's more. There are more cups available that we put in the back. So if you came in and didn't see them or felt left out, uh, rejoice. There are more in the back. So take a second to grab one of those. If you're watching at home, uh, it doesn't matter what you grab. Find something, uh, juice from the fridge or something to drink, something a little bit, a little piece of bread or whatever. Have those elements uh, handy and together, we will celebrate communion at the end of the, or near the end of the service after the message is done. Now, uh, there's a whole lot of talking about saying amen already in the service. Uh, Emily latched on to what happened last week. If you are here or if you watched online, we ended the service talking about uh, promises and how uh, scripture leads us to the point of saying amen to those promises. All these promises that we have in Scripture, uh, especially as we think about Advent and Jesus coming right now, all of those prophetic promises of how God spoke, they all, Scripture tells us, they all find their yes in Jesus Christ. That He is the ultimate uh, fulfillment of God's plan and God's purpose for us in salvation. So as Scripture says, Right after that, we ought to respond in yes, uh, or (laughs) we ought to respond in amen to all those yeses that find their place in Jesus. So we talked about that, and we did a little amen going on last week, and that was awesome. And let me just tell you, as a guy up front who, for the most of the time in our services, looks out and sees a lot of quiet people, to have that kind of feedback, I almost fell down a little teary, you know, in the eye, that was pretty great. So I'm not saying that to force you or to manipulate you to say amen again. All I'm saying is that that is an awesome thing as we agree together that those promises are true, that they're trustworthy. We say amen to emphasize all of these promises. So if you want to keep saying amen, that's all right by me, okay? Maybe we have a little culture shift going on here, and that would be kind of cool too. So, that was last week, but Matthew chapter 2 kind of jumps ahead in the story. Maybe you noticed that. Matthew is real short. Matthew has a whole different approach to Advent, to the coming of Jesus. Uh, And pretty much all he says is between chapters 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then he goes on to another part of the story. So Matthew doesn't get into the details that, say, uh, Luke, the gospel writer, gets into, all these other details. Matthew takes us down uh, a different route in what he chooses to tell us about. Now, if you've been following along already in our Advent book, "The Come Let Us Adore Him," uh, by Paul David Tripp, uh, then uh, maybe you notice it's either day four or five. A statement that he makes is kind of provocative. And so we're going to begin uh, with that statement this morning. Only when you accept the very, very bad news of Jesus's birth, will you then be excited about its very, very good news. So that's not something we typically do. We don't think of Christmas or Advent as very bad news. I mean, I don't think anybody approaches it like that. That probably sounds kind of strange, does it not? Not. Uh, and you jump to Luke chapter two, the, the angels coming, the, the speaking, the proclaiming, all this is good news for, you know, for everyone, which we're going to get into in a little bit here. But most of the time we respond to the story of Advent, that this is good news. So trip is taking us down a whole nother avenue, right? Uh. First, considering that this is very, very bad news. So, Matthew, as he tells us the story of Advent, takes us down that route. He introduces to us people like Herod the Great, Herod, King Herod, okay, and the ruling authority in Jerusalem at the time. To these people, Jesus coming is very, very bad news. So, uh, Matthew stresses throughout his gospel uh it's chapters one chapter two he stresses the promises okay that are fulfilled in jesus he he wants to make sure that his readers that they probably are jewish okay they probably understood a little bit about the original testament and how the ancient prophets, ancient in matthew's time how they spoke he wants to make sure that they're picking up on this that all these prophecies ha, are coming to play in Jesus's life and ministry, beginning with his birth. They're being fulfilled. Matthew stresses that. So as he is telling us about that, he also introduces to us major characters along the way. And these characters aren't just for historical purposes. Uh, That's true, that's part of it, but Herod and the people of his day in Jerusalem and that surrounding area, They're there in the gospel of Matthew to open up our eyes to different realities, what I would refer to as gospel realities. Because on one level, we can read scripture, especially read a book like Matthew, and pick up dates and places and be introduced to people and the historical truth of what's going on. That's all good and necessary. But the gospel writers have another agenda as they write. They want to introduce us to Jesus as not just a historical figure, but as a Savior. So his advent, his coming, makes a difference in my life personally. Not just historically, not just whether or not he lived or died or what did he do, but what difference does it make to me? that Jesus came. What difference does it make that Herod and these other people that were introduced to lived and did the things that they did? So that's what we want to kind of get clued in on this morning. And we're going to do it like this. We're going to begin with how to be your best Herod. How to be your best Herod. Now that's probably another thing you don't really think about ever, if you've ever heard of Herod and know a little bit about him. But that's where we're going to begin. And we're going to try to understand a little bit what's going on in Herod's head, and maybe even in Herod's heart as we look at this passage. So we already read those verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to go back and highlight a few of these verses as we get back into the passage, okay? These three points on the screen, they will enable you to be your, your best Herod. The first one is react. Chapter 2, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came, and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now when Herod the king heard this, he was uh, was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was was to be born. Now, Matthew tells us he was troubled. He was disturbed. Uh, What does that mean? Did he just have something bad to eat? And now he's, you know, facing the consequences of that. Uh, And not just Herod, but Matthew tells us all Jerusalem with him. In other words, probably not every man, woman, child on the street. Probably what he's referring to here is the people that mattered in Jerusalem, the ruling elite the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the powerful, the influential, the people that had an in with the king, all of those people are, are also deeply troubled and disturbed. So what is, he, what is he describing here? Well, it just so happens Matthew uses the same word in his gospel in chapter 14 to describe how the disciples responded to Jesus When they saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified, uh, uh, some uh, translations use, for the same word. Imagine what you would think. Imagine what you'd be feeling when you see somebody that you know walking on water, okay? That's a bit freaky. Same word with Herod and all these people, they are freaked out. It's not just a bad meal that they've had and, and a little indigestion. They hear this story from these wise men, and they're terrified. The, their life is threatened. Now, why? Why is that so threatening? Because if Jesus is king, if he is in line for the throne, if part of the, the lineage of King David, if we go all the way back to that, with Ma- which Matthew does in chapter 1, so if you read the whole gospel, he sets us up for this. You you read about the genealogy in chapter one, and it just so happens we are introduced in chapter two to Herod. And oh yeah, the genealogy is there. Jesus is in line. He is the rightful king. Okay, and then we're introduced, king of the Jews. Jesus is that guy. So Herod knows. Herod's not a Jew. First of all, he's from the ancient kingdom of Edom. Uh, that uh, you know, if you have to go way, you have to go way back to the original testament, way back to the beginning. Uh, where the Israelites first came into the promised land to be introduced to Edom. So Herod, there's no way, Herod knows this. He does not have this throne in any rightful kind of way. Uh, He's a power broker. Uh, He dealt with the Romans, and the Romans put him in charge of of this precinct or this area, this province, I mean, uh, that is Israel. So that's all the Romans, and none of it has to do with the Jews. He knows if there's a rightful king that he is in deep trouble. And all these other rulers, all these authorities that have sided with Romans and with Herod, and if you side with those guys, you're probably not siding with the Jews and with the king. So everybody's in trouble. If the power structure is about to change, then these guys are going to be out. And that means an actual, real-time, literal threat to their prosperity, to their power, to their control, maybe even to their lives. So he reacts. He is terrified. But not only that, he reacts to protect his kingdom at all costs. Uh, Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So once Herod understands the level of threat, this isn't anything to play around with. My whole life could be in danger. He understands that these guys uh, could be used by him to protect his own skin, his own neck. So uh, he sends them out to take action and he does it in secret. And it's quite the scheme, really. There's some palace intrigue and power and stuff going on in the, uh, behind the scenes when Herod sends these guys out. He can continue, Herod, can continue to look the part of the king uh, to these wise men, to the officials. On the outside, he continues to uh, sell people on this image that he would like to maintain. But on the inside the plan is being put into place in order to not only just save his neck but as we get to next to reject or eliminate anybody who may threaten him now herod herod did a lot of good things for the people on the outside of things as king as ruler he put a whole lot of money into the rebuilding of the temple So the Jews, even though they knew he wasn't the rightful king, still responded and appreciated the fact that he rebuilt and put all these public funds towards the temple. So he looked good to them. He's a good politician, right? And he looks good to the Romans because tax flow, the the financials are good, the bottom line's good. He's also putting money into pagan temples in Jerusalem and, and other cities around Israel. So the non-Jewish, the Gentile people, are also responding well to him. So he's doing what looks right in the face of the people, of the community. But on the inside, Herod is a whole different kind of person. Maybe you know some of the stories, his paranoia, uh, the fact that, well, he had a whole different kind of friend and family plan, if you know anything about Herod he eliminated. He killed wives. He killed children. He dealt severely with anybody who could be or who was an actual threat to his power and his control. So from a distance, he did what was right as king, as rulers, uh, as a ruler. Others might have even been impressed in the way that he governed, but inwardly His actions were only meant to protect what he had. He could continue to live this dual existence as long as no one else came in that could reveal him to be what he actually was. The real king would do that. So uh, he reacted, he acted to protect himself, and his power and his authority, and then finally he rejects whatever the prophecy is, whatever God's plan is. That doesn't matter to him. He wants to keep going with his own uh, plan and uh, and build up and shore up his own power. The ultimate form of rejection is finally elimination, to get rid of everyone and everything that could threaten you. Well, finally. After you've done everything else, scheming and manipulation, you've just got to eliminate. To make sure your way of life is protected, you've got to eliminate anything else that threatens. Herod had no desire to worship Jesus. That's clear in the text. He was only doing that to reveal the location of Jesus so he could eliminate him. Verses 16 through 18 is the rest of the story. We're not going to take time to get into the rest of the chapter. But as you can see, you look forward there. uh, The wise men didn't come back. And uh, in response to that, Herod does the next step, kill all the children in that area, ages two and under. He's got to eliminate any possible threat to himself. And he does exactly that. Now, you don't have to be a monarch on a throne and you don't have to be a psychopathic baby killer to be like Herod. Now we're going to come home here. It is my proposition, my suggestion to you this morning, that we all have a little bit of Herod deep down in us. The desire to react, to protect, even to reject and eliminate, that resides deep down in the heart. If someone threatens us, what do we do? I mean, think about it. The opportunity to either humbly respond to someone, to work with people. Uh, When it comes down to it, if we're threatened, we do things that are very similar to what Herod does. And wow, the world is filled of of examples of that. Now, usually we don't go out and murder people, right? Uh, We've found more uh, acceptable social ways, more subtle ways to react and to protect, and to push back, and then reject when we're threatened, when things go, aren't going the way we want them to go, then the claws come out, uh, then we deal with people more harshly, and we all know in the Midwest, that's usually more of a passive-aggressive thing in the way that we interact, and in the way that we talk. There is a little bit of Herod in all of us, when it comes to these moments and these times. So that may be fine with a whole lot of people. Uh, That may be okay. Hey, I got to do what I got to do and look out for number one. That was certainly fine with Herod and it worked with him for a while. And maybe it works for, well, a lot of us from time to time. Except for this. What if there is that nagging question in the back of your head. Now, we don't know if anything ever bothered Herod. But for the rest of us, who maybe have a little more hope than Herod, what about that little nagging question in the back of your head? Should I have done that? Should I really respond in that manner? What if there's something else that this person has addressed that I should think about? What if the way that I've built my life and my world, my chosen lifestyle, the things that I do, the things that I promote, uh, the things that I value in my lifestyle. What if those things really aren't all there is? And uh, if, if you're like me, you've had moments in life where the red flag goes up and you realize because of loss, because uh, of, of you know, life falling apart, because of unexpected things that slap you in the face, you begin to realize that all that stuff, eh, it worked for a while, but when I'm confronted with what really aches inside of me, what hurts, what longs for something better, I realize all my efforts, eh, they come up short. They come up short. So, is Jesus good news or is he bad news? Now, I agree with what Tripp said, that, that, uh, that quote before that we looked at, that provocative quote. Jesus is still really very, very bad news until anyone begins to look at the reason why Jesus came differently. Now I was flipping through channels uh, over a week ago and I just caught the very tail end of some show on network TV. It was some Broadway musical kind of thing and it was ridiculous and I'm glad I didn't spend more than 10 seconds on it. But what caught my attention as I'm flipping through and I stopped and start watching it is this massive display on stage of music and lights and people dancing and all this crazy stuff going on. Uh, And then in the back of the stage, which I don't know that stage front or back or, I, I don't know. I don't know the whole stage stuff. Way back there, okay? That way up above all the commotion on stage. You see these two characters uh, that are dressed to be looking like Mary and Joseph, and there's this little manger scene. So there's this suggestion that there's something else about Christmas than all the materialism and all the music and dance and the production, the Broadway musical thing, right? That's all this show has been about. And all of a sudden there's this, oh yeah, there's this other thing, this kind of part of our tradition that has to do with these kind of poor looking people uh, from a different culture and a baby in a feeding trough. And that's all there was. There wasn't any mention of Bible verses. There wasn't any detail put into it. It was just at the very end of the show. Oh yeah, and they're in the back and the arms go up at the end of the song, you know, like everybody, like the Broadway thing, you know, Mary and Joseph are doing that. I don't think it was worship. I just, you know, whatever they do. Uh, And it made me think, you know, all the commotion, who, who even, maybe I'm the only one who noticed these characters in the back uh, because all this other stuff going on, what if it ended differently? And I like to think about stuff like this. I'm obviously not a producer, but if I had a chance to produce something, to make a statement or to, to, to emphasize, right? All the music and the lights and the dancing and the production just stops. And people stop whatever they're doing and they exit the stage in silence. And you're crickets or maybe an animal somewhere or maybe little sounds from a baby. And the focus is on nothing else for a moment but Jesus. And this awkward silence. okay, what do we do with that? That's where our culture is. We, we dr- either, if Jesus is presented at all, he's, dr- he's drowned out by all the noise and the craziness on stage. But if everything else stops and you're, you're not distracted by anything else, right? And your eyeballs are on Jesus, then what do I do with him? I don't know who he is or why is he there or what's the point of his presence in our culture today are we threatened by him are we amused by him are we distracted by him are we confused by him maybe all of these you know are are possible reactions or responses in our culture but the bottom line is what what do we do with Jesus is he just good news angels singing and and parties and presence under the tree or do we look at him and go i don't know what to do with him but there's something about his presence that i don't like because if he's shown up then i can't continue the way i have because i'm not the rightful king i'm not in a place where i really have the right to assert my authority because I really don't have any power. You know, come to think of it, there, I, I realize that things aren't right. I mean, if I have a moment of absolute transparent honesty, I have to admit that there are things that are missing in my life, my lifestyle, and the things that I choose to prioritize. And then there's Jesus. And what do I do with him? And is he trying to speak? Is he exposing something in me that I don't like. And that, at least at this point, is bad news. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Consider this. Another quote by a good old friend of mine, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Just let that linger. Something greater to come. What could that be? Greater than what? Greater than me? Greater than my failures? Greater than my troubles? Greater than what it is that's gnawing at me? Greater than my fear? Apprehension? Anxiety, inability to adequately meet my own needs for crying out loud. Because if I have to tell the truth, I fail on those things too. Could there be something else to what Jesus is doing that catches me in the moment? And if I just dare to look at him and consider who he is, I have to say, Am I going to be threatened? Is he just bad news that hurts more? Or do I begin a whole different journey in response to his presence, to Jesus with us, that turns very bad news into very good news? So we examine how to be a Herod. Let's save this, please, right? Let's move on from there and consider how not to be a Herod or how to discover Jesus as very, very good news. Instead of react, why don't we consider this? Maybe this is our opportunity to respond. Now, Luke, as I mentioned earlier, tells the rest of the story of the angels appearing. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angels have a proclamation that Jesus is good news for all people. And he speaks to shepherds, who, by the way, were not looking for him. They're out in the cold at night doing their thing. Who knows what they're doing around the fire, just trying to keep warm, just trying to get through life, right? They are not actively pursuing a Messiah. And as far as we know, they could care less. And lo and behold, angels appear to them. Not to people who are more religious or more moral or are or, or somehow seeking to become more religious or moral. Uh-uh. The angels show up to guys who are not looking for anything else. And then they proclaim what? Here's another thing you should consider doing? No. They proclaim something that is being done for them. Good news is, the gospel is a proclamation of something that is already done, or in this case, in Luke 2, is happening real time. It's not something you've got to do or uh, achieve in any respect. God has a plan for you, and he's shown up, whether you're looking for him or not. He might just be who he says he is. Now, Instead of reacting, respond. Instead of protecting, allow that idea to to come into your mind. He might be someone who's worth listening to. Someone that I should respond to. There's a lot of people that that I've talked to. Maybe you've talked to. Maybe maybe you're one of them. (laughs) Or maybe you used to be one of them. When it comes to inviting to church, some people, when they're invited, just come. Hey, that's great, because I trust you, I like you, and I'll, I'll check your church out. Uh, while other people I've talked to say, no, no, that's not me. I'm not going to go in there. God probably strike me down to the door. I don't know how many times I've actually heard that, you know. Maybe you've heard that too, that there's going to be a bolt of lightning, because you don't know what I've done, and there's no way I'm going to go in those doors. Maybe... That's one of you watching, listening right now. So first of all, it's not going to happen because it didn't happen to the rest of us. So it's not going to happen to you either. So you can still give it a shot. Okay, that's for the first point. But just give Jesus a chance to speak. I have on the screen John chapter 12 where Jesus is speaking and he speaks of himself as being the light fits perfectly with Advent and a light coming, does it not? And he also goes on to say that he didn't come to judge, but to save, which is huge, especially uh, in the face of established religious thought, when uh, so many of us think that I've got to fix myself up in order to be presentable to God, and I don't want to do that. So I'm going to go on with how i'm making it work thank you very much but jesus confronts that thinking and says i didn't come to judge you i'm not going to strike you down no matter where you're walking i came to save you whether you're looking for me or not i have a message for you that is the very very good news that no matter where you've been or what you've done i've come to save you right where you stand, right in the midst of that life or that lifestyle, whatever it is that has defined your life, I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm going to meet you right there. And I have a plan that is already finished to save you. I'm not going to leave you where I find you. I'm going to take you in a whole different direction. Now, It's important to remember these guys. Instead of rejecting and eliminating this story, the gospel story, seek and find. Consider the wise men that we're introduced to in chapter 2. We know so precious little about them. They appear, they give their gifts, and they disappear. But just for a moment, consider something here, okay? Okay. Uh, they came from a land probably from the east. They saw a star. They were presented with this idea, and however it worked, that there is a king that they need to come and honor. So we could say maybe they were seeking at some level truth or Uh, reality, in a different plane, in a different Eastern way of thinking, they certainly weren't Jews. They had no, probably no concept of a Mosaic law and uh, the things that a good Jew would know. They probably don't know any of that. They just know that there's something out there, and it has to do with this light, and we're going to follow that, and you know what else? It's worth everything. Now that's kind of, I mean, when you think about that, traveling from a great distance, these expensive gifts they're all in what brings a person to do that you you it's a foreign land you don't these people are weird they have weird customs and religious practices but there's something going on here that's worth all this money all these fancy gifts to travel everything to risk our own lives to go and not just here's your gift But what is their response? They go, they find the child. uh, The star comes to rest over the place where Jesus was, verse 9. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Didn't matter what their background was. Didn't matter how holy or pure or moral they were. All, it matter, all that mattered was recognition that Jesus is king. They came into his presence, and this stuff is yours, and we fall on our faces to worship you. You know, when you think of it, it's kind of startling, right? I mean, who does that? Only somebody who's absolutely convinced in their way, at their place in the journey, someone who is convinced that Jesus you're worth it all, and I am going to worship you. And that's the challenge that we have for us this morning. Instead of reject, seek and find. John says this in 1 John 2, the last part of the verse, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. So many times John in his gospel And in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he uses a metaphor of light to try to communicate to us, thick-headed people, who Jesus is. And the stark contrast that the gospel brings into lives that without Jesus are very, very bad, are hopeless, are lost, are dead. Scripture tells us we're dead in our sins and our own way of life without the light who is Jesus Christ. So the darkness is ending because light expels darkness. Anywhere where light is present, darkness flees. It has to. It is, it's science. Jesus comes and the the darkness has to run. John in the first chapter of his gospel speaks to us uh, and tells us that Jesus came into the world and his light is so bright, is so overpowering, the gospel is so true and so wonderful that the darkness can't overcome it. There is no way, nothing can threaten Jesus or the gospel truth and promise that his life and his death and his resurrection brings to us. Jesus is the true light, John chapter 1 says, and in response to that light no matter who you are but if you're coming to that point like the like the wise men there's something about this that's worth it all Then, as john says receive him receive at this point you're not laying down gifts to try to earn the the approval of jesus the wise men didn't do that that was an act of worship doesn't basically in response to what there are already uh convinced that Jesus was, that he was the gift, that as they come to worship, just like we come, when we come to worship, yep, it's a living sacrifice, but we come to receive who Jesus and the gospel, what it truly is. John says, everyone who's received him, who, who believes in his name, has the right, receives the right to become children of God children of God. So if you've been in a place where maybe you start to think that, you know, Advent is empty or void or considering Jesus maybe is more like, honestly, like a threat to my existence, and that when you really start thinking about it, there's more bad news about my life or where I'm going than I'd like to even admit. If that's been you, consider the very good news. That just like these wise men, you can come. You don't have to have the frankincense or the gold, the myrrh, any of that stuff. Just come, as John had said. Receive the true gift, which is Jesus Christ. Believe in His name, and let the faith that only God can give. The gift, faith, is a gift. the The ability to receive and believe is a gift. Receive that gift from Jesus, so that Advent becomes the greatest news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us new, anew, afresh. Make the Advent story something that maybe it hasn't been ever in our lives. If we've gone through the motions of Christmas and parties and trees and gifts, and and that's all there is to it, then I pray, Lord, that you would expose what's really going on and the emptiness or the confusion or even the loneliness of being without you. Expose us to your light. Drive out the darkness and cause new life to begin in you, Lord Jesus. Place that in us. The same power that raised you from the grave that we considered last week, make that power turn us from dead people into living people, children of God who receive the gift and begin to believe that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Come into us this time, in this place of Advent, and begin a new thing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our Advent series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including Genesis, Frostroads, Ruth, Faithworks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.